All right, last week we kind of left off on a little bit of a cliffhanger. We were dealing with the subject of why there may not be an individual will of God. And some of you started to push back, which is great. It was good because that's what we wanted. So I'm going to summarize. For those of you who are joining us and missed last week, we're just going to do the quick summary like we always do to bring everybody up to speed on where we are. And then tonight, if you watch carefully, there may be something surprising where we're going to go back to something we've already covered and it might all connect. I don't know. I'm praying that we can get this done. Here's the roadmap. You can see that this series is starting to become long, which is good because we like to really get into things and deliver on our promise that we're not going to skim the surface on anything. So we've covered God's sovereign will, his moral will. We threw out the individual will from a traditional view. Last week we critiqued it. Tonight we're going to look at if the critique is true, what's left for us. And then we're going to go into some more things about how to look for God's guidance in our life and a strong part of doing God's will. This group is good at hearing and it's good at me talking sometimes and you talking back. We're going to be challenging this group to do in a couple weeks after all of this consideration. And finally, we answer the questions. You guys remember all the questions you've given us? Here they are, and here's some more, and here's some more, and we've been through them a number of times. You know there's a lot of questions that you've given to us on the cards, and I'm collecting some other ones. In fact, you'll see some of them tonight. So the last week, what we're going to do is we're actually going to take all of these questions and just walk through them and give an answer The good news is getting easier to do that. Here's where we are with God's sovereign will. I want to change the definition a little bit tonight because we've kind of put it up on the screen a number of times the same way. I'm borrowing Gary Friesen's definition of God's sovereign will from the book that we're tracking for this critique of individual will. Here's how he puts God's sovereign will. It's certain. It's detailed. Key to our series, it's hidden. It's not knowable to us unless it's already happened or unless God reveals it to us in prophecy. It's supreme, except like we said, there's that tension where it doesn't violate our own responsibility and our own free will if we can ever understand how that works, which we probably will never fully understand it. And it's also perfect, working together all things for the glory of God and our good. Okay? So the principle we have is we can't discover God's sovereign will before it happens, only as it's revealed to us. Okay? Moral will. We said that the moral will is what's revealed in Scripture. It encompasses his commands to us, direct commandments about specific things. It also encompasses the attitude, the methods, the means, and even the wisdom that we're supposed to make decisions that aren't expressly stated. God's moral will is readily available. When people are always asking, what's God's will? What's God's will? It seems as a group, our consensus has been people skip over his moral will. They know it's there, but they're really seeking something more. They're seeking an individual plan for every single person's life. And so let's pay due respect to God's moral will. It's abundant. It's more than we could ever finish in a lifetime, even in a few chapters, as you've seen when we've done that exercise. But we want to press on and say, yeah, but tell me specifically for me. We want this. This is the traditional view of God's will. This circle here represents God's moral will, which is the things that we should be doing as we just described. But 
The view in the traditional sense is that there is an individual will for you. It's that little dot. And your job throughout your life is to constantly seek God's direction in every decision, or as we qualified last week, in almost every decision. Until you are in that little dot. You're in God's, what some people call his perfect will for you. You're in the center of God's will. That's where he wants you to be. Last week, we started to bother a few of you, I could tell, because we started to critique that. Now, I told you before I even go to the critique and just review that real fast, we're critiquing the traditional view. That doesn't mean that I've thrown it out. But there's some strong critique of it that we should consider if we're going to be thinking Christians. Here was the critique. Number one, we have the problem of what we call ordinary decisions. Most of us don't seek God's will on ordinary decisions. We only seek his will on big decisions. If you follow the traditional view, you should be seeking God's will on every decision, or as we said, almost every decision. Because we don't know what's important and what's not. We don't know what's life-changing and what isn't. We don't know what will change the course of somebody else's life. Think of, think of what you'd have to think about, all the different ways you'd have to look at decisions to decide what's important and what's not. And we decided as a group, I think, if you look at your own life, the things that have changed things in your life probably was something you thought was an ordinary decision. But if you look back and think, if I had just that one thing would have been different, my life would have been different. So how do you deal with that? The traditional view says you should be seeking God's perfect will for you in every single decision. None of us do that. None of us could do that. What about equal options? When things look like they're the same, it's not like one's a bad one, one's a good one. You really can't decide because they look equal and you're waiting for direction and it doesn't come. So we spend time not making decisions, waiting, waiting, waiting. That's a problem for the traditional view. What about equal options? Or seemingly equal options, by the way. Problem of immaturity. We covered that a little bit last week. Think of all the things that people do, immature decisions that we often make, and we cover it by saying, I think that's God's will. Or I heard God telling me something, and you're thinking, I don't know if he would, that doesn't sound right to me. Doesn't sound like that's the Lord who's leading you in that direction. This is a problem that plagues young believers more than more mature believers. I think there's a reason. Young believers are on fire. They see God's will in everything. Mature believers, we're like, we've already been there, done that, already going to heaven. We're not even excited about doing anything. So nothing is really God's will at that point, except that we just kind of hang out and sing worship songs, right? Problem of time wasted. I don't know. I'm waiting for a decision. We are responsible to God for our time That's a problem with the traditional view. There's a lot of waiting around. Now, some of you will hear from your church backgrounds, be patient, wait upon the Lord. It's a valid point to bring up, by the way. But there's a lot of times when we're just waiting and waiting and not doing anything in the meantime. Even if you believe in God's individual will and you're waiting for him to reveal it to you, you could still be doing some of his moral will. You could still be doing some of the other things that he's asking you to do. The problem of fleecing, I'm going to leave that alone a little bit. We talked about it last week, but we're going to talk about it more in the coming weeks about does God actually supernaturally reveal things like in fleecing? But we said the problem of fleecing was that we create fleeces in our life. We create tests. Like if she picks up on the first ring, it was meant to be. She's supposed to be the one, right? If this happens, it's your will. Even if you don't study for the exam, if I get an A on the exam, it was your will that I do well in the class. Like, what are you doing? I made that akin to playing 20 questions with God. You're trying to figure out the roadmap by a series of yes and no decisions. 
if you want me to do this thing, then you'll do this. If you want me to do this, you'll do this. And it's like we're almost testing the Lord. Trying to kind of tap our way through with yes and no questions to get the answers. Problem of subjectivity. All that stuff about having inner peace, being led. A lot of times we don't know. Is it my fear? Is it nervousness? Is it really the Lord saying no? Do I have peace because I'm relieved that I don't have to do it? It's hard to tell. And finally, I think the most important one, the lack of any scriptural support. You know, I do a lot of the the reading and stuff sometimes. I want to challenge you guys in a couple places this week. The first one is, for those of you who are still struggling with, is there an individual will for my life? Find the scriptural support. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying last week we looked at most of them and they seem like they don't talk about God's individual will. They talk about his moral will. But this is a group where you're supposed to challenge back. So you have a little bit of homework. For those of you who are still searching, we're still in the series, we're not done. Come back with some verses that you believe support the idea that God has an individual plan for your life, an individual will for your life. Find it. Here's just an example of why I think the scriptural support is weak. This is one of the most often cited verses, Colossians 1.9, encouraging believers to find the will of God. And as you can see, we covered this last week. It says, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. A direct prayer that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Sounds like we said last week. There's the evidence that we should know his will. Except when you read things in context. Context, man. That's just the hardest thing about the Bible, isn't it? Like, we could make up any theology we wanted if it wasn't for that darn context. If you read the context and go on to Colossians verses 10 to 12 in chapter 1, you start to realize that he's really talking about the knowledge of his moral will. There seemed to be a lack of scriptural support for individual will. And here's where we ended last week. Here's where I thought we had the cliffhanger. But a lot of you were still struggling. Why? Some of the comments that I heard from this room were, that doesn't sit well with me. Here's some of the things that you thought. Doesn't God have a plan for me? Doesn't God know the hairs on my head? Doesn't every Christian have a unique purpose? Doesn't every Christian have unique giftings or talents? Doesn't God need me? Doesn't God care about me and everything I do? Doesn't God promise me that all things will work together for good? Wow, it sounds like good responses from people. When we surveyed you last week, about half of you said, yeah, we st- I think there still is an individual will for your life. And when I asked, why do you still believe that? Again, I'm not trying to beat it out of you. We're here to critique it. When I was asking, what is the basis of your belief? These were kind of some of the feelings you guys had. Let's talk about this. Does God have these things for you? Does he have a plan? He knows the hairs on your head. What do you think? Doesn't this... Doesn't this tell us that God must have some sort of individual plan and purpose? What do you think? Yeah. Well, um, I don't think God needs us, first of all. You know, I think that he created us and for his glory. God doesn't need us? I don't think that he needs us. 
he loves us, but it's like he can, I mean, he lived without us before, you know what I mean? Because I, I honestly think that, that it's different for everybody. You look at the Old Testament, you know, where David was chosen, Daniel, you know, was chosen, Moses. Like, there's certain things where God said, you know, Moses, you need to deliver the people out of, out of, you know, out of Egypt. And so, there's certain things where God calls people to do. So, there are examples of God using people for his will. So some people have a purpose. I think everyone has a purpose, but I, I think that it's two different degrees. Like, maybe my life is, for me, when I'm, you know, walking down to Alberta's, and all of a sudden there's a guy there that needs 10 bucks. You know, hey, man, cool, talk about the Lord, he gets saved. Maybe that's all my purposes in life is to save one person. You know, like, God can use me through that. Okay, let me ask you this. When you were walking down the street in your hypothetical example, and you meet the guy on the way to Alberta's, and you give him the 10 bucks, you start the conversation, and he gets saved, Right. right. In that example, did you stop and say, Lord, is it your will that I go to Alberto's tonight? And then, like, as you're walking, you go, Lord, is it your will that I give this guy 10 bucks? And then, is it your will that I actually sit down and talk to him? Or do you think that that all can be taken from God's moral will? Because he's saying, I want you to love, care for, take care of, evangelize, preach the gospel, that you could do that without he, he has a will for us that we probably don't all understand. Like, it could be God's will for me to talk to that person. And if, if it was a different person, then it might not have worked out that way. Okay, but let's be specific. Is it God's individual will since you, in your hypothetical, didn't ask him? If there is an individual will, you're supposed to be able to figure it out to do the right thing, right? And in that That's example, right. yeah. So it might be a sovereign will, might be his moral will. But if it's his individual, well, you'd have to figure it out somehow to even know to go to Alberto's that night. Yeah, sure. Well, I would say that that's different, Ryan. I would say that um, you talk about purpose, that that's really more or less a correlate that with God's will, not necessarily, you know, the question of oh, we're was that my, you know, was that something that I had to seek out individually? And I think if you actually look, or if we look at the story of Moses, we actually have a perfect example of someone who doesn't even have any interest at first in doing any will towards God. I mean, you know, God has to repeatedly ask Moses, do this, do this. Well, I don't want to. Well, do this. Well, I don't really want to. Right. So, I mean, you have all of these biblical figures who don't even, you really don't even get the sense that they're seeking God, at least for, you know, the individual will, but we get this kind of picture later as we're reading the story back and saying this was God's purpose but that seems to me to be more of a global thing than a you know you know this was someone who was you know intently seeking out you know every okay Monique like there are individual blessings in my life that happen that I know like I just thank God like those little moments that you say wow if this wouldn't have happened then this wouldn't have happened and I'm just really thankful and happy and like to be happy I want you to have this but I don't necessarily think that's like will, it's just because he loves you, that he's like, okay, I'll give this to you, and I think that maybe people like Moses or whatever, like, maybe it's convenience, like, okay, you're the one because you were a baby put on a basket, you went this way, they found you, so all right, I'm going to use you because you're there, you're in the situation, and I want my people free, so I know it'll work, you're in the situation, I'm going to spin it my way because I'm God, you know? Okay. So far, though, all of the examples you're giving really touch on God's sovereign will. They haven't yet touched on his individual will, if there is one. Meaning that in the example about Alberto's, where the Lord's purpose or will for your life, he orchestrated that. He orchestrated that to sovereign will. You were following his moral will by doing what he would want you to do. But you didn't ask him, should I do this? Should I go tonight? Should I talk to the guy? Should I lead him to Christ? You didn't do anything. The example of Moses that you guys have brought up over and over. 
I don't know if it was random that God picked him after those events were. If you look at God's sovereignty and his control, the more likely answer is God orchestrated everything into Moses' life perfectly so that at the right moment he could then ask Moses to do this. But again, Moses wasn't standing around going, should I talk to a burning bush today? Should I rescue some people? I mean, Moses was running and fleeing from his people and from the Lord and from everybody else when the Lord found him and dragged him back, kicking and screaming. That's why I'm looking for someone to say, no, I do believe that he orchestrates a specific detailed plan for your life in which all decisions are supposed to be consulted with in advance before being made. So I'm in the center. Look at some of the questions on the screen. Let me help you answer a couple of them. Just some thoughts. Does God have a plan for me? I can't tell you how many times I've, I actually researched this to see what people thought on the internet. Christians, non-Christians, does God have a purpose for you? You know, there was a lot of Christian websites that said he has a purpose for every Christian. Good. What's the scriptural support? I'm not saying, by the way, he doesn't have a plan for you, (laughs) right? I was just interested in what is the scriptural support that Christians are going to use? Every one of them, without exception, cited Jeremiah 29, 11. You want to know that one? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future, right? We claim that promise like it's our own. What's the problem with Jeremiah 29, 11? Tiffany. It was meant for the people of Israel. Yeah, I'm not saying that words in the Bible cannot apply to us, but Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel. Now, I have to be careful here because a lot of, there's scholars that disagree about this, but most scholars that I've looked at say, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a promise made to the nation of Israel under the old covenant. It doesn't mean that God's word changes or God's word is not true. But I kind of smile when I see people driving around with Jeremiah 29, 11 on their license plate frame. Because Jeremiah was not a prophet to the people of Azusa. He is a prophet to the people of God. And you can say we took the place of the nation of Israel. You could, you could make a lot of extrapolations. And I don't want to throw out the Old Testament in one word. But even if it applies to us today... Consistent with God's other messages, it applies to his people more than you could claim it for an individual life and say, I'm going to prosper you individually. He does have a plan for you. I just don't know that that's the right verse to cite. Does God know the hairs on your head? Absolutely. He knows everything. Still doesn't prove that he has an individual will for every single person. Does every Christian have a unique purpose? Well, I think the first unique purpose we have is to glorify God. That's first and foremost among all purposes. Does he have more specific purposes for you? Yes. Can you discover it in advance? I don't know. In some cases, like Ryan just pointed out, yes. In many cases, I think, we may never know how we work it all out. Doesn't every Christian have unique giftings and talents? Absolutely. We spent a whole eight-week series or something on spiritual gifts. Each Christian has been gifted differently by the Holy Spirit. We are differently blessed, differently gifted, differently talented, and we're supposed to use them how? Where are we supposed to use our gifts? In the body, as one body. So we do have different purposes, if you will, even at a micro level, because we're supposed to work differently in the body. Paul goes on at length in numerous places about our membership in the body. Many of Paul's exhortations are about how we work in the body. So, yeah, we have a purpose. He says, you know, can everybody be an eye? Can everybody be a hand? Yes, you have a distinct purpose from other people. You are unique. 
but it's for the working of the body. Not for you and your own little Rambo crusade with the Lord to save the world. There's like a greater context for it. Doesn't God need me? I think we've answered that. No. God doesn't need you. Uh, if all of us were snuffed out tonight, God will still work it out. Okay? Uh, God didn't even need creation. God didn't need anything. God is, is self-sufficient. He's in a relationship in the Trinity, in his triune nature. He's not lonely. Doesn't God care about me and everything I do? Yes. But just because he doesn't have a detailed individual life map for you doesn't mean he doesn't care. I think that's what really bugs us, is that we think, if you take away this concept of him having an individual plan for every decision I make, it somehow makes him distant and impersonal. Like, eh, do whatever you want. Give you a book, read it. Just follow the manual. Like, no tech support? No. Just follow the manual. I made it detailed. We want more. But it's okay for God to give us his moral will, which is more than we can ever accomplish, and him still care about everything we do. They're not mutually exclusive. You can have a God who says, my moral will is sufficient for you. Do what I've told you to do. And I still care and love about every single thing you do. It's still possible. Doesn't God promise me that all things will work together for good? Yes, but who's good? All of our collective good and good overall. Does God promise you that everything will work for good in the immediate circumstance? No way. We have the book of Job just to remind us that things don't go the way we want them to. Forget the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? All the followers of Christ, how did their life end up? You know, big retirement, you know, somewhere on an island, hanging out going, Lord, I did your will, man. I get to go to the missionary retirement house now. No, they all ended up dying. You know, we used the example of Stephen last week. I mean, Stephen is being stoned. He looks up and he sees heaven opened up before him. He gets a direct shot right into heaven. What a miracle. Do the stones bounce off of him? Does he stand up and go, no, he dies for the Lord. But we know that even as Stephen is dying for the Lord, there's an onlooker standing up watching the stoning. Who's that onlooker? It's Saul who will become Paul and write the better part of all of the New Testament and most of our theology when he has his conversion experience. Maybe, maybe more than maybe. God was orchestrating his will even when things don't work out so good, quote unquote, for Stephen. By the way, what's better than being like seeing right up into heaven and knowing you'll be there in a few seconds? That's pretty good. Although none of us would define being stoned as good. Doesn't sound so good. Look, I'm not trying to beat it up. You know that this side, we're on the critique side. So my job is to critique. Your job is to fight back. Sounds like most of you are just laying down. <laughs> you guys okay? Just laying down? You're willing to give up individual will so easily? Give it to me. All right, so you're saying moral will? Like, as long as you're following this moral will, you can pretty much like, do anything in Right. Let me, let me actually, since you're saying that, I'm going to transition right into it, and then you can challenge it if you... Yeah, so what then? What's the alternative if we don't have an individual plan? What do we then have? Here is the theory that's being proposed by the book. We have freedom. So here's how it works. Where God commands, where the moral will is clear, then we must obey. 
Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. So that's the answer. Is like, yeah. Where there is not a direct command, where we look at his moral will. And by the way, when I mean direct command, I'm not just saying like, it says like, do not eat meat on Sunday. It says, you know, his moral will encompasses the attitude, the manner, the wisdom we already make decisions. So you might say, well, he never talked about this one subject, but we know from the things he said and the attitude of the Lord that he gave us how we're supposed to behave in certain situations, whether or not he specifically addressed them. So if his moral will is clear, we must obey. If his moral will does not give a certain command, he gives us freedom and responsibility to decide. What's an example of that? The Bible doesn't say you must go to Southeast Asia. The Bible does say that we're supposed to go out and preach the word. We're supposed to go to the nations. Doesn't say which nations. So we're supposed to obey the command about going, but since it doesn't say where, under this view, you have the freedom to decide where. And by the way, for those of you who are having a little trouble with this alternate view, isn't that what most of you do anyway? I know some of us sit there and go, Lord, do you want me to go? If you want me to go, the money's going to come in and all that stuff. We're fleecing again. All right, where there is no command, God also gives us wisdom to choose. So it's freedom, responsibility, wisdom. And here's the one that Lena was hitting on occasionally. And I emphasize the word occasionally. God gives us special revelation and guidance. What special revelation? Like Jesus on the road to Damascus to Paul, like the burning bush, like Gideon with the fleece. Like occasionally there will be a miraculous sign. Come back at me. Go ahead. It doesn't matter which nations we go to it because it just says nations, right? Right. Okay, then why would Paul, and several times throughout the New Testament, he would tell the place, well, I would really long to come to visit you and, you know, fellowship with you guys, but it's not God's will right now. Yeah, you need to find you need to find the verse. Read it. Always in my prayer making request, perhaps now that's by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Good. You're absolutely right. Let me make two points on that. One. I just want to be careful in our dialogue that we don't say that God doesn't care. Okay, so let's just say if God gives us freedom to choose, and he does care about our choices, but if he cares. <laughs> Second of all, when we talk about Paul and the apostles, we have to be a little bit careful. Here's why. Paul did receive special revelation. Paul did feel the Holy Spirit telling him not to go certain directions in his ministry. Paul was imprisoned. So if you know that Paul is writing this letter, what letter are you reading from? That was Romans. Okay, he's in prison, right? So when Paul says, I would like to come to you if it was the will of God, he may, by the way, be saying it's God's sovereign will because he's obviously in chains and he can't go. But you're bringing up such a good point that I almost want to pause it for a second because I want to come back to that, that... First, let's keep in mind that the apostles did have special revelation that we can't claim at all times. And that's one of our habits, if you will, that we like to take something that we find in the Bible that happened to one of God's chosen apostles or prophets and then apply it to us. We want to have a Moses experience, an Elijah experience, an Elisha experience, a Christ experience, a Paul experience when we're not that office. None of us have been called, well, I can't say none of us, most of us have not been called to be apostles or prophets. It's a very unique role, and certainly the Spirit was active. But since you bring up Paul, let me show you a couple things. Let me give you an example of freedom to choose from an apostolic point of view. How did people make decisions in the book of Acts? It's a good question to ask. Special revelation probably got no greater 
over the years. It either lessened or stayed the same, but it was never greater than it was during the time that the apostles established the early church. So if the highest level of special revelation was going on in the early church, how did they make decisions? If you search the book of Acts, it's going to be hard, except in those instances that Randy's pointing out, a couple of them, to find a situation where the apostles are running around saying, we want to do something, but we need to know what the will of God is. In fact, you don't see that model. And this is one of the critiques of the traditional view, is even the early church didn't run around saying, you don't see them sitting around asking what the will of God is. Instead, you're going to find these phrases. If you follow the epistles and you follow the book of Acts, you're going to find these words common, that the apostles themselves say, it is good, it is better, we thought it best, it is fitting, we thought it necessary, it is not desirable. They were making decisions in wisdom. There were certain areas that there was no direct commandments. What's some of those areas? Should you be circumcised or not before becoming a Christian? Are there certain foods that we need to be eating or not eating? Certain doctrinal issues that are going on in the church. What do we do about marriage of unbelievers and believers? Things that Christ didn't cover in his direct teachings that we have records of. And the apostles are making some decisions. Here's an example. You guys are so concerned in your surveys about marriage questions. Let's cover one. Here is Paul being asked by the Corinthians about a marriage question. And listen to how Paul responds. What I want you to look for is words that give people freedom to make decisions. He doesn't tell them, seek the Lord's will, because he'll tell you what he wants you to do. He says the following. He's talking about just marriage in general. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's saying, like, I think I have some pretty good wisdom on the subject. Because of the present crisis, meaning that he thinks that Christians are about to be massacred and it's close to the end of the world, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry... You have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, what he meant to say there, by the way, is not that marriage sucks. Because as I stand here today, I can testify that it does not. He's saying that those who marry in this life, meaning about to go through the trials that we Christians are about to go through, it's going to be tough being married and watching your spouse massacred or whatever's going to happen. It's going to be tough for you of all the trials that are about to face Christians. So he is, you need to contextualize a little bit. But did you see all the freedom he's given to people there? He's not saying one is right, one is wrong. He's not even saying you should do what the Lord commands. He's saying, I'm telling you, here's some advice. Make a decision. If I asked you that for those of you who believe in God's individual will, what's one of the most important things you could decide in your life that you want God's guidance for, most of you are going to put marriage in the top three somewhere. And here he's telling you, you say, seek the Lord's individual will for your life, pray before the Lord, sit and fast and find out whether you should marry. He's like, if you marry, it's good. If you don't, it's better, more advisable, but it's up to you. Philip. Um, going back a little bit on the with this, like one of the, the third thing you said that if 
there's no command on something, then God gives us wisdom. And choosing, like you can see that with people like Paul, but speaking slightly simply, I know other Christians that make decisions not out of wisdom and having no wisdom on a matter, like making a decision, you know, including myself sometimes. And so, like, where where do you get support that God gives us wisdom to make decisions, and where does that backed up in actually like actions and like life? Because I don't see it. Okay. The second question is, most Christians don't do what you're supposed to do anyway. I mean, that's no, we don't, so our practice is almost irrelevant. But I believe it's James 1.5 that says, if any of you should lacks wisdom, ask the Lord who gives it abundantly. That's the John Selbeck paraphrase. If somebody wants to look up the actual James 1.5 and read, I think that's, there is a direct command in, in Scripture, and I think it's in James, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask the Lord and he gives it to you. Next week when we talk about God's guidance, we're going to talk about where you get that wisdom practically. Like where we should get wisdom from. James, James 1 5, you said? I think so. Read that. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, uh, and it will be given to him. Let me finish this and I'll come back to you because I know you're, you're, you're itching to get me. Here we go. Here's more wisdom for you to make decisions on. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Meaning I think I speak in wisdom when I say this, that he is upon me. But do you notice all the freedom he's giving to people in this church? I mean, what could be more important than who you marry? If you're going to seek an individual will, and not once does he say, and if her husband dies, then she should really seek out the Lord to figure out if it's his will that she should marry again. He says, she should do as she pleases. She's free. Seems pretty compelling that he gives freedom. Randy. I was going to say, what about what Paul's talking about, uh, how God chose Jacob to uh, rule over Esau. He said that uh, Esau served Jacob for no other reason than he chose him out for that purpose. Right, Jerry? In that story of Jacob and Esau, though, it's still God's global sovereign will going on here. And, and again, see, I'm, I'm okay with getting rid of individual will. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, so in that story, I still don't, I still see, you know, an example of people who are, who are doing some pretty bad things to each other. Right. And none of them stop to ask, is it your will that I steal the birthright, think, right? Right. A kind thing for Jacob to have done would have to have been feed your brother not steal his birthright. But what Randy's hitting on, you're right, does have to do with sovereign will. And that's why I'm going to come back to it because the twist tonight is we're going right back to sovereign will after saying that we can't know it. We're going to come right back to it. That's why I want to give you just give me a couple seconds and I'll get there. So I think I've made this point. And I, again, I challenge you already to find me versus individual will. Your challenge number two is read the apostles and acts Read the letters and see how often they use these words where they decide it's desirable, they're thinking, there's freedom. Some of you are still bothered, that's okay. Let me tell you what I think the resolution might be, and then I'm going to let Randy come back if he wants to. Doesn't God have a plan for your life? I think most of us deep down inside feel like, yes, he does. 
Doesn't he love and care for every one of you? Yes. Don't you play a unique purpose in the grand scheme of things? Yes. The question is not, are you special? Does he love you? Does he know the hairs on your head? Does he have a plan? Does he have a purpose? That's not the question. I think the answer to all those questions is yes. The question is, can we figure it out? And I think that answer is no. Because it has to do with God's sovereignty. Let me go back to the graphical application because we might understand it better this way. Here's the moral will. Within that, you have the freedom to choose. Do you remember the verse we looked at where it says, man chooses his path, but the Lord directs his steps? You think that doesn't sound right. Like, shouldn't God give us the path? Then we decide how to get there. Shouldn't God give us the direction? And like, we just follow. How is it that we pick the path? Then he directs the steps along the way. Like, that seems kind of backwards. That's a verse about God's sovereign will. And it's the solution to the riddle, I think. Does God have an individual plan for your life? Yes. It's part of his sovereign plan. And you can't thwart it, and you can't change it, and you can't figure it out. This view says that here's God's moral will, here's your freedom to choose, but all around it is God's sovereign will, and you can never go outside of it. In fact, it goes even more deeper than that. God's moral will and his freedom for us to choose is still controlled by his sovereign will. So it's actually like this. His sovereign will is an overlay over everything so that even when his moral will is followed, of course we're doing his will when we follow his moral will, but even when you have freedom to choose, God's sovereign will is still working. Doesn't that sound like the first week when we started about do we have free will? How does his control and his sovereignty affect our free will? Well, we're right back where we started again, but that's the beauty. It's a little bit of a twist and it's a little bit of a riddle, but God is so big that we can just barely understand this concept, but it lays down so nicely. God's individual will, if you will, if there was such a thing, would be to allow you to make the free choices you make within his moral will, and he's still going to work out his sovereign will. He's still going to make it come out the way he wants. You still can't thwart him, even in your freedom. Philip. If he's giving us freedom to choose, he doesn't have a plan for us. He's letting us do what we want within boundaries, which isn't a plan. That's just freedom. Yes, except that his overall plan will not be thwarted. So what I'm really trying to say is, even the freedom and the choices you make still are going to work into his sovereign will. And you can't discover whatever that role you have in that big plan. Like a lot of us tend to think of God's sovereign will as like a huge puzzle. And then we're just a piece. But we forget that even within the piece that is us, he has a little path in there that's gonna, that we're going to go through. That's the mind bender. How do we have freedom and how does he still control that small piece? That's why we spent the whole first week dealing with that subject. And I don't think we dealt with it in any way that we could resolve it. If 2,000 years of scholarship hasn't resolved it, we're not going to resolve it. But we at least know that for those of you who are still saying, wait a minute, but I do play a part. There is a plan. There is some sort of overlay. There's something that's going on in my life and it still works. Yes, that's his sovereign will working in your life. 
But remember the principle of sovereign will is we can't know it. So I'm not telling you to give up the fact that he has an individual dealing with your life. I'm saying you're not going to be able to ask yes or no questions and figure it out until it's already happened. Randy. Where do individuals' uh, stewardships and calls calls and ministries? It's a good question. I want to hold it because we're going to cover God's guidance and his call for your life. And what does that mean? Okay, but I'll give you a quick answer, which is guidance and calling for someone's life is a, a purpose for their life. If you look at individual will the way we've defined it, you've got to ask them about every decision that happens. Most people who feel like I feel called to minister to the people of China, right? that's a calling to do one thing. But you don't then ask every single decision in that way. You just know that's what God has called you to do, and then you go do it. That's how people describe it. And that's why things like calls, ministries, giftings, those things we're going to talk about separately. Yeah. God can't have an individual plan for us if we're able to choose. Because if we're able to choose, either he has a plan and we can thwart that individual plan, if we have freedom to choose, otherwise it's not real freedom. Or he doesn't have a plan for us individually, and then he works whatever our choices are towards the sovereign will. I think there's enough brains in this room that are going to blow up right now from just the overload that if I start to answer that question, I think we're going to lose everybody. But here's, let's talk about it afterwards. But the answer will be the same thing we've always talked about. Just because someone has free will does not mean that God is not still planning that whole life out. That's the hard dichotomy we've been struggling with. The did Judas freely betray Christ or did God plan that Judas would betray Christ? Did Judas have a choice, for example? That classic dichotomy. We can talk about it afterwards, how it works, but that's a perfect example of somehow someone is freely choosing everything they do, but God still has a plan for the way that person's life is going to work directly in to his plan using their choices, but knowing what they're going to be at every moment they make them. And being in control that the outcome's still going to come out the same, even though the person is freely choosing. And again, if I go any further, I think our heads will blow up. So, Jeremy. I would say that there are other theological points in our own faith that we uphold where they are tensions, right? Uh, the inner life of the Trinity, something we can't know about, but we understand the economic, right, the salvation part of it. You know, we talk about um, God as perfect and God as immutable and those kinds of things. But at the same time, we talk about God as, as personal and relational. Okay. I think we need to separate the fact that God makes us choose to from God knows what we're going to choose. So we have freedom, and he knows what we're going to choose. And because he knows that, I think he orchestrates his plan around our choice so that it works within his sovereign will. So he's like, I know you're going to choose this. So in my sovereignty, because I'm God and holy know everything, I want it to happen in this way. So you chose your stuff, and I'm going to make sure that these things occur to, you know, whatever. Like, God knows what we're going to choose. He doesn't make us choose it. You know, one of the things about standing up here that's so interesting is you get to watch everybody's face, like, as other people answer. And some of you right now are just feeling like, what the heck is going on in here? Like, I'm so bummed out right now because I just don't get this God, and I don't even get this subject, and I'm not even sure I like it anymore. That's what this group is good at, I think, is leaving some discomfort in you (laughs) and showing you that God is so much greater than you can ever imagine. And all of us are tempted to imagine that we've got it figured out. And tonight is a classic example that shows us that none of us have this figured out. Let me try to conclude simply, maybe to bring some of you back who've checked out going, (laughs) I was like, forget this. 
if you're on a search for God's individual will, this alternative view says you're not going to find it. He does have an individual will for your life that flows out of his sovereign will. But because it comes out of his sovereign will, it's not knowable or discoverable. So for those of you who are concerned that God doesn't care about you or he doesn't care what you do, no, he's intimately involved in all of his creation. He's working things out in the believer's life and the unbeliever's life. He's working out things when people sin and do bad things, and he's working out things when people are doing everything to praise him and glorify him. He's working it all out. He says, all things I'm going to work out for good. He's not detached from your life. All this series was intended to do up until this point is introduce this alternative view, which is saying, maybe, though, you just can't figure out how it's done. If you're sitting around wondering if he wants you to do this or that, maybe moral will is the most we'll ever have with certainty. That doesn't mean he's not working on an individual level. It just means that you can't figure it out in advance, so you have the freedom to do what you think needs to be done. And responsibility, by the way. You can't just abuse the freedom. You can't just do the wrong things. You're still a steward of time and your life and everything in it and everything he's given you and every gift you have, all of that. You're stewards of that stuff. He's still going to see how you do with what he gave you and how you do with the freedom that he gave you. But it does free us up a little bit from having to wonder every moment, is it your will that I go this way or that way? Because the Lord's going to say, You have freedom in this area. Thank you that you want to give your life over to missions. Thank you that you want to give your life over to the church. Thank you that you want to give your life over to the poor. Thank you that you want to give your life over to justice. Whatever it is that you want to do, because all those are biblical. But if you're trying to decide exactly where, he might say, you have freedom. Otherwise, if a person says, I'm a pastor, I'm called to be a pastor every single day. He's like, Lord, should I preach on this passage or this passage? Should I talk to this person or this person? Should we have this event or this event? Like, after a while, the person, the Lord's like, stop bothering me. <laughs> Gave you some freedom, use it. Otherwise, I'll call somebody else. All right, no, I guess I didn't say that. Last week, we left it with some tension. This week, we're leaving it with some tension. And I hope to resolve it next week and just wrap it all up in a place where you can at least feel comfortable with it. That's one of the reasons that we go out afterwards, by the way, so that we can keep working on the tension so that Phil and I will witness about an hour-long argument later tonight. It'll be good. We always do this. Sparks will fly. Maybe Randy's joining in this week. I don't know. Ryan looks downright depressed over there. You think you'll be able to pull it together and do worship? Can you, can you pull it together? <laughs> you just look like I just told you that God doesn't exist. I'm, you know, this is... You guys know that my heart is to help you grow. One of the things that I ask myself before I stand up here each week is, why are we doing this? Why would I even stand up here to try to take away your little teddy bear of individual will and yank it out of your hands? Here's why. And I want you to hear, if nothing else you hear tonight, hear that at least my heart on this. We, as Christians, spend too much time trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. Our life is short. Some of you are young, but life is short no matter how young you are, because you don't know when it's going to end. And God's moral will is so abundant, and he cares about so many people and so many things and so many priorities, and most of us are still wondering what we're supposed to do. And the reason we're doing this series is because even if you don't believe a word I say about any of this critique stuff, that's okay. I'm just here to stretch your mind. But in the end, what I'm here to do is say, do something. 
Even while you're waiting for the individual calling of the Lord, do something in the meantime. I want to free you up at least to not feel guilty that if you actually just get to work following his moral will, that somehow you're missing God's will. That's the purpose of the series. So if you're uncomfortable, it's okay. I'm uncomfortable too. I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to pretend to. I keep studying, trying to find more and more ways to make you comfortable. We may leave it, as Jeremy said, in a place that we're all uncomfortable. The way we would leave the topic on the Trinity or anything else, just that's the most we can go, Lord. Just honor our time. But that's not the reason we're doing it, just to be uncomfortable. We're doing it so that you guys could get up and find freedom to do God's will until he does show up in some special revelation or a burning bush and tell you to do something else. At least we're being wise stewards of the time. Let's pray. Our great God, we glorify you tonight and we magnify who you are. Our silly discussions in this room only make you seem bigger. Our inability to understand and fully comprehend you only glorify you because we realize that we don't have you figured out and we aren't even close in that endeavor. So, Lord, that gives you greater glory and it puts us in our rightful place to just worship you tonight. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what we talked about in this room, we are still yours and you have called us and that we have the assurance of eternal life. And if we don't understand this or we do or if we think we got it figured out and we're wrong, it doesn't matter because we still have the assurance of the life to come. But Lord, please, in this life that we have left, however number of days, and you know the number of days for each person in this room, however many days we have, would you move us to a place where we could actually do your will and find freedom to pick up your word and follow your word with assurance that no matter what we're doing, we are doing your will. Just, Lord, to set aside time to do. Give us a strength to do that, Lord. We're very comfortable in our life. We need you to move us. Holy Spirit, convict us and move us out of our comfort into doing your will. We pray this in your name. Amen.